Hello listeners, it's Peter Ayers. I, uh, I wanted to start this episode by sharing some news. Uh, I think it will delight you very much. It's, it's certainly made my day. Um, the Australian Podcast Awards will be held on May 18th and Stages, the podcast we love and that has talked to a huge cast of wonderful people, is a finalist in the Best New Podcaster category. Uh, we're nominated with five other very worthy nominees and we're very much over the moon about the recognition. You know, I, I keep saying we because Stages, like any theatre, is a collaborative effort. I prepare each episode, I line up the guests and I finish it off with post-production, all from the mighty Wyndham studio, in other words, my living room. However, uh, each episode is just me, the guest, and you, the listener. Together, we create Stages. So congratulations. I know we all look forward to the awards ceremony in May. It's all very impressive. I encourage you to jump online to the Australian Podcast Awards and check out the immense talent competing for the gongs. And as always, thanks for listening. And now, on with the show. An accident in her youth could have ended the performance career of Chloe Delamore. She was not going to let that happen. A determined focus and the discovery of Pilates therapy ensured that she would heal herself to then be able to take on the world. And more. Delamore is one of our most cherished performers. Roles in The Producers, The Addams Family and Thoroughly Modern Millie have engaged audiences and demonstrated a practitioner of considerable skill, charm and joy. Any meeting with her on stage or off will guarantee a smile, a full heart and the precious gift of having met a special human being. She is selfless, generous and also an incredible overachiever. When not gracing our stages, she currently serves as a national president of MIA, the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, guiding the organisation through a myriad of challenges from imported artists and saving theatres to establishing diversity, equity and safety in the workplace. It's a role that keeps her very busy, but Delamore is committed in representing her fellow performers to achieve fairness and reward. She's also an accomplished businesswoman and has continued her great appreciation of the benefits of the Pilates technique with managing her own studios. We should all be so lucky to know a champion like Chloe. I very much enjoyed this catch-up, giggle and passionate discussion with Chloe Delamore. What's going on Well, the that's the thing. You actually hear stuff on BBC World Radio that you otherwise wouldn't even know Existing was going on. Yeah. Like, I think I know more about Brexit than anyone else in the country at the moment. But it's it's actually something that gives me a much broader awareness of things that are going on in Africa that, you know, medical um, medical um, trials that are going on in third world countries. And like, it's fascinating, really, really fascinating stuff. I think, it, yeah, I often <laughs> wondered, I recently, this year I started listening to Fran Kelly on Radio National for Why breakfast. And I thought, is that a sign of me getting older? Yeah. Or <laughs> it is. You don't it have is. to agree, Chloe. Yeah. Um, or, or just wanting to be informed. But also, there's so much, you know. Breakfast, breakfast radio is just so inane, really. But I suppose that's why it's it's structured like that to wake people up and get them into the day. Yeah, and I I I really like something that makes you your brain start thinking differently, and because we can get into our own bubbles so easily. Mm. Well, um, thanks for talking to Stages today. It's lovely to have you here. It's very exciting. In the Wyndham Studios. Oh, no. It's so <laughs> exclusive. All right, let's start. Um, full disclosure. Oh. Um, if I can have a quote from the Adams Family, is a game that people play, let your darkest secrets give you away. Does that ring a bell? Yes, it yeah, does. Okay. I'm not going to make you give your darkest secrets away, but I just thought it's a nice end. We'll see how far you dig. Morticia Adams, of course, being one of the roles that you've played, and a number of beautifully executed roles which you've received great reviews for. I'm, I'm wondering whether you have a favourite. Oh, oh, actually, gosh. we might mention a few of them. Morticia, of course, Ula in The Producers, yeah. uh, Roxy Hart many times in mm. Chicago. Millie and Thoroughly Modern Millie. Gosh. Oh, that's like, you know, saying which child do you love more. Yeah, It is difficult, isn't it? Yeah. Probably it's the ones that I feel there was more I could have um, played with, with the role. So it's probably about the length of time that I've played the role. So... Uh, for example, uh, Morticia in 
Adam's Family and Millie and Thoroughly Modern Millie. Well, can, can I? We talk about the yeah. Adam's Family. Of course, that was a show that was prematurely um, um, finished mm. because you didn't garner the audience that that obviously the producers had hoped for. Mm. Is that or? Sorry, how difficult mm. is that to cope with a show which suddenly stops? You know, you're obviously just starting to feel your, your stride with the role and, and your fellow performers. Uh, it, it must be soul-destroying. I think it's that powerlessness where you're doing everything you can on stage. Your job is to deliver that story and you can't go out on the street and drag people in and make them buy a ticket. It, it's that It's that thing of but I'm doing my job and, and I can't do anything other than that. Um, and I think for me, I loved that show and loved the cast and loved Jerry Zaks, uh, the director. Um, and it was such a beautiful, beautiful journey in the show that I think that's what you grieve you grieve the 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 loss of that family that you've that you've created um, for whatever period of time, and I think that's true of any show that finishes. You grieve a loss and a, you grieve the the separating because those people will never come together again. For me, Adam's family was um, a bit of a kind of a catalyst for me personally in terms of. Um, where I was heading in my life and in my financial independence. And so I was, I was 30, 38, 38, 39, and I was devastated about this show finishing. And it really, um, it really took me to a place where I went, can, can I do this anymore? I think we all as performers have that, there's that, that very clear moment where we go, I don't know whether I can do it. And if I'm going to keep doing it, I'm going to have to do it differently. And it's what actually pushed me to take charge and go, I need another source of income to remain mentally stable in this world, if I put it really bluntly. Well, there's, I mean, when you, do, when you are in this industry, I think there's terrific emotional investment, there's great sacrifices mm. regarding your finances and your personal life, etc. Mm. So I guess there does come a point for every performer where they've got to weigh up all of that and work out a way that they can, can move forward if they want to stay in the game. As an industry, mm. we have the highest rate of poverty in our industry. Um, because our work is so seasonal, it's dependent on how you look, depends on what plays are casting that year, on what the in-look is, what the skill set is for the current musicals. It's, it's dependent on other things, not on who we are and how good we are at anything. And that's what makes us feel so disempowered and... and and longevity doesn't guarantee any sort of promotion or absolutely not yeah. absolutely not and and so many um, so many really successful performers who are hugely successful for a period of time and then you go where where have they gone and then they reappear 15 years later um, because that project is then the next one that is really right for them. So it's it's such a challenging industry and I, I thank, I kind of, as, as devastated as I was for the show to end um, and, the, and what felt like a kind of a brutal way in which it ended, uh, it also was really galvanising and really pushed me to a different place that I'm really thankful for. Is there a statistic on the annual income of a performing artist? Uh, there, yes, there is. I don't have it to hand. You should have prepared me. I should have prepared, but, but we know that come it's... Come with my stats. It's not, I, I was just, it's for the shock horror of the listener, but, but it's pretty low, isn't it? Well, the unemployment rate yeah. is 95% in any year. I sense that you're going to wear a few hat, put a few hats on and off mm-hmm. as we go through this interview because, mm-hmm. of course... Um, and I look forward to talking to you about your your life as a performer, um, also as a businesswoman, but mm. also as the national president of MIA, which mm. is um, 
Actors' Equity. Mm. What does it MIA stand for now? It's the Media and Entertainment Arts Alliance. Yes, I knew that. I was just testing you. Um, it's a good idea to test me. Very good. <laughs> um, I can be very testing. Uh, <laughs> Don't I know? <laughs> Chloe, um, where did you grow up? I grew up in Baxter, which is just outside of Frankston. Oh, in Victoria. In Victoria, yeah. So it was very rural back then. So probably nowadays I'd say I, I grew up on the peninsula with an AH at the end. However, it wasn't the peninsula back then. It was um, it was a lot of open fields and beach shacks down on the on the beach. So yeah, it was well, that sounds it, like a it was beautiful. It was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. Yeah. Uh, siblings? None. None? You're no. only, only, I was so only horrendous. They went, mm. <laughs> I, d- I doubt that very much. <laughs> um, so what's it like growing up as, a, as an only child? Uh, do you, you have don't... lots of cousins and friends and things? Yeah, or? I did. Yeah. Right, I did. So and, and I think I, you know, I was at dancing every single night and weekend. I, I certainly never... Um, never wanted for for friends, um, and and Baxter was a whole lot of other, you know, young families. Um, we lived just off a court, so I, I remember my father one day going out into a big double garage and counting the number of children playing over, and there were sixteen children in the big double garage with you know multiple activities going on. So they were both teachers, as you know. So they, um, you know, they loved having children around and creating activities that were simple but, you know, fun and educational at the same time. Were they um, artistically oriented or did they um, take you to, I suppose, dance lessons, Mm. of course, but did you go to the theatre very often or did they perform? I was so lucky, so lucky Mm. that they loved literature. Um, literature and drama was their was their love. So we used to drive up to town to Sydney Theatre Company, uh, Sydney Theatre Company, <laughs> maybe not Sydney Theatre Company, Melbourne? maybe Melbourne Theatre Company. Um, uh, I remember the early days of um, of David Atkins um, productions. Dad loved discovering people who were creating new projects. The early days of Circus Oz. Like, I remember all of those so vividly. And Dad used to go and get me um, uh, the Bass uh, ticket um, ticket booth posters of the shows, which were the really oversized um, posters. So after the show had closed, he'd go to the Bass ticket offices and um, get these get these posters so my bedroom was covered with um you know mtc's lettuce and lovage with you know ruth cracknell and um i remember marine um pirates of penzance introducing marina Pryor. that was right next to my head in the you know in my bedroom so i was so lucky um that they were so passionate about theater dance that was me. I was three. I came home and I said, I have to do ballet. And mum was like, okay, I knew nothing about this. Why? What, what had you seen? Well, what instilled I think, that? I think at kindergarten, I had a beautiful friend called Alison and her mum was a ballet teacher. At the same time, though, Mum took me to Maya in town, or Myers, as it was back then. Uh, whether it was in Frankston or it was it was in town, I'm not did quite it, sure. I, I know we called it Myers too. It was so Myers. did it have an S at the end? It did because oh. it was the Myers family. Right. Yeah. No, it's just my store Maya. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. There you go. See, even you can. I can remember that, and these. a blast from the past too. You're talking about the Bass Ticket Agency. Yeah. I mean, that's it's all right. Ticket Tech and uh, Ticketmaster now. Yeah. So. Yeah. Good old bass. Um, but, yeah, I, uh, I apparently was standing in the middle of uh, one of the departments in Myers and Mum turned around to see me sort of having what she thought might be a little episode. I sort of had my head slightly tilted back and was fluttering my eyelids and she thought, mm, maybe she's having a little pushy mull or something like that. Anyway, she followed my eye line and there was an in-store television that was that had, I'm assuming, Swan Lake. It was a whole lot of swans. And she realised I was trying to copy the swans. So I think 
my demanding to go to ballet and her seeing my, my sort of absorption, well, she took me to the local ballet school. Everything is beautiful at the ballet. So I spoke, and feminine and um, I don't know white tutus. I don't know what it was. The thing was, yeah, I, I wasn't just into ballet. I loved the tap and the music and, yeah, I don't know. I have no idea where it came from. Uh, so when did you start dancing? At three years old? Three. Yeah. Mm. Was that, that was the local ballet school. Mm. Do you remember your first teacher? Yes, Suzanne Osterberg. Right. Friends on Facebook. Oh, really? Terrific. Yeah, Excellent. hopefully she'll listen to this. <laughs> uh, yeah, beautiful Suzanne Osterberg. Then Sandra Allen at Rosebud Ballet School. And you studied the Chiquetti method, aren't you? I did. I started with British Ballet Organisation, right. which was BBO with um, Suzanne Osterberg, and then went on to Chiquetti. So tell me about Chiquetti. How is that different to any other method of so ballet? So it's Russian-Italian, right. um, and I like to call it the... Um, I, I feel that it is very much about the drama of the performance. It's not just about the technique. I feel that it um, it encourages children to express the emotion that they feel whilst they're doing the movements. Which As is opposed so important. To just, which is so important. Having or maybe that's just what I picked up on because my technique was, you know, maybe not as strong as others. <laughs> but it was very much about the, the, the theatre and the drama of it. And that's what separates a good ballet dancer from an ordinary ballet dancer or a good opera singer from an ordinary opera singer, the ability to act and and tell that story. Well, that's a very... I mean, that's that's a big debate that you're opening up there. Oh, okay. Well, I'm... Because, um, you know... Take me on. (laughs) Well, no, I agree. Right. However, um, I think with ballet, there's such a focus on the technique Technique, and the aesthetic. Athleticism. Um... Well, I think more the aesthetic, right. and I think so. The turn of a foot, the the, the point, the, yeah, the, the, the straightening the, of a leg, the, the you know the one hundred and eighty degree turnout, the you know the arabesque that um, you know has the leg, you know more than humanly possible behind the back of the head. You know, I, I think if you look at the early footage of. Anna Pavlova and, and, and even Margot Fontaine, dare I say, you know, Margot Fontaine's technique was was not what technique is now, and yet she was incredible at telling a story. So, um, yeah, so I, I sometimes feel that that in in straight classical ballet, we may have lost a bit of that that dramatic storytelling. The the dancers that I love have all been very dramatic, the Lucinda Dunns and David McAllister's, they were all very, um, very much about telling the story, whether they realised it or not. So when did you realise that perhaps you weren't going to be a great ballet dancer? Even though, you, I mean, sorry, I should have, your, 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 your dance skills are exceptional, of course, but... I mean, Ballet. No, you, you're, you're very... Because you're, you're very five right. foot ten, aren't you? I'm five foot eleven. Five foot eleven. Is that too tall for a ballet dancer? Well, at the time, it, it was. So when you go into the Australian Ballet School, which is really the feeder and the, the sort of the ultimate... At, back when... Um, Back when I was training, you know, in the in the eighties, um, very early nineties, um, the Australian Ballet is 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 where you went, where you were expected to go if you were going to have a professional career. Um, and so the idea is that you have the students who go into the Australian Ballet School are going to become the corps de ballet of the Australian Ballet, and so a corps de ballet needs to look similar and I was very tall at 15 I'd almost stopped growing at 15 so I was very tall um so I was I was not going to naturally fit into a quarter ballet look I was not going to fit into a little group you could have been a rocket I could have been a rocket and I kind of sometimes wonder why I didn't pursue I didn't pursue that I would have loved to have Oh, wow. How did I not know about the Rockettes? Mum, Dad, what about those Rockettes? Um, yeah, so, and, and yeah, look, uh, now I am so thankful that I actually ended up 
where I've ended up. Um, but I, I probably experienced my first feeling of, of disempowerment at that age of 15 when I, I realised that I really sort of couldn't control whether someone thought I was good enough. Um, and so I decided it was about my body weight because also another teacher had said, um, well, you know you won't get in unless you're under 45 kilos. So that's what I aimed for. No. Yeah. And I was, I don't think I reached 45 kilos, but I was under 50 kilos. And at the age of, you know, 15, that was skeletal. Like I look at the photos now and it's just dreadful. Careful the things you say. Children will listen. Oh, that, that was probably the, the biggest learning moment for me as a teacher as well. I am very careful very careful about the words I say, particularly in regards to someone's physique, skill set, appearance. We just, you don't know what's absorbed. And, and you're dealing with, with children who have immense passion and, and drive and hunger to, to have a career in, in, in the arts. So they will take that on and do exactly what you what suggest. An adult, well, mm. What an adult says. And an adult in, in an authority, an authority, an authority position. So, um, as you know, I've, I've sort of been in an area where I've worked with um, young ballet dancers, and mm. I always find it heartbreaking that you know they, they, they can have all the passion and ambition in the world, but because of body shape, it's just never going to happen. Mm. But there are so many other jobs. Absolutely, absolutely. Which you and found. that's what I didn't. That's what I didn't have. That's what I didn't know. Um, and. It's something that over the years when I've gone and taught at, you know, ballet summer schools and so on, I've, I've tried to impart that and say there are so many other things you could do. And it's quite lovely that over the years I've gotten little, thank goodness for, you know, social media for this sort of thing, gotten little messages saying, I remember your musical theatre class, you know, back in the summer of uh, year, and I'm now in Germany doing X, Y, Z. And you go, oh, wow, I never thought that... They're the rewarding yeah, moments, aren't they? Aren't yeah. they? You yeah. know all yeah. about that. Yeah. Uh, so music theatre, when did that creep into your world? Um, you went to mm. McRobertson's Girls High School Hi. in, in yeah. Melbourne. So was that a chance for you to explore the the musical theatre diva within? Did, did you were well, you in the musical think it was every about year? That. No? I think it was more that we actually did the musical with the um Oh, it was be- the boys meeting school. boys. Meeting bo- okay, yeah. yeah. Okay. Fair enough. You know. Yeah, good. <laughs> Um, so, uh, yes, and, and we had incredibly passionate, uh, teachers and one of the, um, one of the original props makers at MTC ended up working at, at Melbourne High. So we were exposed to professionals who'd worked in, um, professional theatre. Uh, so it was an incredible, incredibly eye-opening in terms of, there are all these other things you can do as well as ballet. Um, yeah, and then I uh, then at the end of my so in my year twelve, um, my father passed away. So I just kind of made my way through that year and just kind of survived the year. And my incredible headmistress said, "I think you probably need a year off before you go Got into you. yeah go into." Um, into study, I desperately wanted to do um, osteopathy. Was accepted into physio, deferred for a year, and went over to the UK and worked in a girls' boarding school in uh, High Wycombe, just outside of London, about forty-five minutes outside of London. Um, and six months in, had a fall in the school and broke my arm so badly it shattered into five pieces. Um, and, yeah. Tell me about the fall. What, it was downstairs or off yeah, a horse? Or? I know. If only it was snowboarding or something fabulous. Literally slipped downstairs that had just been mopped. A big old, like this was a traditional girls' boarding school. You know, you think of all of those um, childhood stories we've yes. read. It was that. And I lived in the attic room, so right. I was upstairs. It was my day off. It was a Monday and I came down the stairs and my feet literally just slid from under me and I just landed on the 
on the wrong angle. Yuck. Mm. So I physio, I, I went to the physio, I had metal put in the arm. I rehabbed like a little demon, but I wasn't actually monitored whilst I was doing the, doing the rehab. Um, I'd been told that the arm would be frozen at 45 degrees, that I wouldn't get flexion and extension. I'd never dance and I probably wouldn't be able to do physio. What, so you'd just so get I'd through life stuck. like this? Yeah, well, I could just, you know. Like truly easy. scrumptious. <laughs> Pretty truly much. Truly. Or I could do capalia <laughs> very well right. as well. Um, if only this were visual. Yeah, I know. It's, it's unfortunate, isn't <laughs> The it? antics we're up to right now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I ended up um, travelling into London and uh, going to Pineapple Dance Studios to go back into dance classes to try to rehab myself fully because I couldn't step onto a moving object. No one had done a balance test. I couldn't step onto an escalator. Um, the whole sort of right side had all atrophied. And then I found the Reformer, Pilates Reformer studio in the basement of, of um, Pineapple. Pineapple Dance Studios. And so began my, my journey with Pilates and further training. Um, I guess, how old were you at the time? You were 20, I 20 21 17. or something? No, I was oh, seven, really? I was, I'd just turned 18. Now, I'm thinking to, to another 18-year-old, they may not have had the, the nous and drive to go and really investigate mm. the ability to sort of reconnect with their arm again. So I suppose your grounding in ballet and an awareness of your physicality and all that's mm. taught you that, hey, there can be something done here. Totally. I remember sitting there looking at my arm up on a pillow with this huge gash in it and three pieces of metal, and I just thought, this is not right. That was the statement that just kept going over in my head. This is not right. This is not right. What I've been told was not right. So what sort of exercises were you doing with Pilates that was working on the reformer and it was just gradually sort of reconnecting with your arm and teaching it to move again? Yeah, well, they'd actually sliced through the back of the arm, which is all of your tricep muscles. It's all of those so really they were, fine, small that muscles. That scar tissue was contracting it all, I suppose, and, and, and holding it in yeah, place. And yeah, it, and so I actually had to... I mean, first of all, I had to learn how to use the arm in its frozen 45-degree angle. Right, just so to, I had to learn to how to drink touch coffee my head. or... Yeah, 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 yeah. I couldn't wash my head. You know, it was, it was four months to touch my head with my hand. Um, so my right my right side was essentially useless. I, I'd lost use of the arm, and no one told me that beforehand. I'm not sure whether it would have been better to have been told or not. But it's going to throw into the mix also, you know, mm. is it that, that young child there. You're also grieving the loss of your dad yeah. during all of this as well, which must yeah. have made it yeah. doubly difficult. Well, I think that was what, sitting in that bed, I sat there going... Okay, Dad died like just over twelve months ago, and now I've just been told that the thing I love—sorry, no one's no, ever right. asked me on this level—and right. um, here I am being told that the thing I love doing, I'm not going to be able to do it, and the thing that you think you're going to study, you're not going to be able to do it. I was like, "Yeah, this is all wrong. Mm. This is all wrong." I've and it was kind of, it was actually just a survival mechanism. And I think at that age, I think because, because you just have that knowledge of, of yourself as vital, you do just literally go, well, I just have to find a way out of this. And you did. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you somehow summoned that strength to... Because it could have gone equally, it could have gone the other way, and you could yeah. have been a basket case for. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. I suppose so. Yeah, yeah. But I guess you know that's a reflection of you know great parents, and they mm. taught you well. Mm. Sorry about yeah. that. That's no, quite... thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I guess there comes a point also where were you travelling into London and seeing big West End musicals and, yeah, and well, all that sort of thing? See so. them for like fifteen pounds. You yeah. could go and see. Judy Dench in a little night music, listening to her speak, sing, send in the clouds. I saw it as well. It's great. Hello. That was one of the, that was the first time I thought, I understand this song. It's ex uh, you just took the words out of my yeah. mouth. I went, yeah. oh, that's what this song is about. And it's just like, why sing it? Just speak it. Mind you, I'd never seen a little night music before. I'd, yeah. All the many, many renditions I'd mm. heard on CD, of mm. course, etc. Um, 
uh, lovely Simon Burke took over one Did of the he? roles in that. Yeah, yeah, as Carl Magnus after oh, wow. the original guy left. So wow, yeah, mm, a little bit of trivia little for bit you. Of trivia. Eventually, sorry, um, auditioned for a Cameron Mackintosh scholarship mm. and trained at the at London, London School Studio Centre. Yeah, Centre. so I auditioned at. So I rehabbed the arm and I was going to dance class almost every day in London, catching the train from High Wycombe. And uh, one of the teachers just said, why are you not doing this full time? And the Australian psyche at that time was by the time you reached 18, if you hadn't done full time training, you were over the hill and you were, you know, your time was done. So that was kind of where my brain was at. Um... So I auditioned for London Contemporary Dance School and London Studio Centre, got into both of them. London Contemporary Dance at the time was going through financial challenges. Um, we couldn't afford, you know, Mum and I couldn't afford. This is late 90s, I this guess. This is 90, yeah, 93. Yeah, uh, yeah early 90s. Um, I know I look so young. Um, well, I think you left That's that. where you got the mistake. No, the, no <laughs> I was always going to say it at the time, but, you know, at the girls' school, you were living in the attic, so I think you left the portrait up there. Oh, did I? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, yes, so I, um, yeah, I auditioned for a scholarship, and that's the only reason I was able to stay. Thank you, Cameron McIntosh. And I tried to thank him. So when he came, when we were Because you worked at Oliver. Yeah, I worked course. on Oliver. Yeah. So um, I told a number of people whom I'd worked with in Australia, with, in Australia who also worked with um, Sir, Sir McIntosh. And I said, you know, please, please, please thank him. You know, I'm forever indebted. I, I could never have done this training. Because you never had an opportunity I wouldn't, to I wouldn't have done it. Right. I hadn't had a, an mm. opportunity at that point. So when he came to Australia for opening night of Oliver, I, um, I had to tell him. And what was delightful but disappointing at the same time was he just sort of tried to sort of brush it, tried to sort of brush it off. Um, I, I still don't think he quite understands that you know that was a huge. It was thirty thousand dollars or something that. Well, perhaps we he didn't funded have. funded many scholarships at many schools. And I'm and sure he did, and we should all say thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's great that he's giving back to the industry. Yes, yeah, fostering young talent, phenomenal. which is, is fantastic. Yeah, it's great. Um, so. <laughs> In your career, you've had the opportunities, you know, you touched on Jerry Sachs before, mm. Susan Stroman, mm. Mel Brooks. Mm. That must be exciting when you get to yeah. sort of work with your heroes and receive mm. a positive affirmation from them. Yeah. I think Mel Brooks was the, Mel Brooks was the, you know, the absolute clincher and highlight, you know, having grown up on Mel Brooks Movies. Films, yeah. which you know, some people might say mm, is that appropriate parenting, but um, yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal man. I mean, talk about resilience and you know, an icon. Mm. So the producers, you know, and playing Ulla, you'll have to remind me of a surname. Inga Hansen, Benson, Jonsen, Tolan, Holland, Smart, and Swanson. Thank Gosh, you. Gosh, Peter, you are so like onto it. <laughs> Very good. I, um, I'm impressed. That, well, I suppose it's sort of burnt into your it brain, is. isn't it? Yeah. I didn't great. even have to think about that. But that was quite a breakout performance for you. Was there ever any talk that you might have gone to New York or, or London with that? Because oh, the producers so much talk. was the yeah. the talk of the yeah. the world at the time. Yeah, there was so much talk, and as Todd McKenney says, you know. I think he experienced the same thing on Boy from Oz. On Boy from Oz, and you just yeah, um, yeah, working overseas is such a it has to be star aligning scenario to be you know invited to go overseas because really um, it's it's so unusual for Australians because there are very different laws in the UK and the US, so it's incredibly rare. For that to happen, which you know, it's happening at the moment, I guess, with young Ainsley from Aladdin going to Broadway to do it there for a while. My understanding, though, is that he actually has his green card. A green card already. Okay. Yeah. Uh, look, All right. No, that's cool. That's cool. I wouldn't quote me on this. No, thing. no. Um, People yeah. listening, don't quote <laughs> on this. Um, but it is wonderful when we get to see local talent Absolutely. go over and, and achieve. Absolutely. Majority of them, the Hayden Tees, the um, Amelia Cormacks, 
um, they have all made the choice to go to the US, gotten a green card and auditioned alongside everyone else because in the US, unless you have that green card, you cannot work without the okay from US equity. And US equity, every single time, will protect their own members. Um, but of course, not only as a performer, you've worked on many musicals as a dance captain, as mm. an assistant choreographer, you know, mm. Billy Elliot especially. Mm. What's that like when you're not in the show yeah. but you're responsible for yeah. the way it looks, yeah. constructing? Um, I loved Billy Elliot. It was so unique because of those boys to take that journey with them and to, to be watching them now um, and remembering when they were little kind of 12, 13-year-olds auditioning in the drill hall down at um, Rushcutters Bay. I remember Michael Domeski coming in. He was his, his legs were like pipe cleaners. He was such a scrawny little thing and his hair was like, he looked like a little poodle. It was, he was these huge eyes. He was just gorgeous. But so, like, rough and rough in terms of um, technique at that point and to watch his journey over the next... 12 months that then morphed him into that next um, the next journey that's taken him into into adulthood um, in terms of doing that kind of role long term I learned really quickly that I'm not good at having to recreate exactly the same material over and over and over again for years on end. I'm fine at performing it myself because I think it's a different mental process, but to be teaching others identical material and watching identical material, there's a part of my creativity that that starts to um, scream and go, this, I need a change. Well, I, I guess it's that creative creativity that that, mm. that, that just it, it's reached its point. Yeah. It can't develop any further. Yeah. So you're constantly coming to that wall and then going yeah. back and beginning and going back, again. Yeah. yeah, it's a little bit like Groundhog Day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I loved the journey, and I loved particularly in Billy Elliot working with actors and helping them to do some really complex dance stuff, particularly the tap stuff, and finding ways to verbalise that. And Because I always believe that if someone doesn't understand what you're saying, it's not their fault, it's just that you haven't yet found the way to tap into their skill set. So it taught me a huge amount. Um, and I probably could have continued on that in that kind of a role, um, but I felt, I, I felt that I'm not, I'm not the person to do that long term. You are currently serving as the national president of the Actors' Equity, mm. Mia. Mm. Have you always been a union person in, in the shows that you've been in? When did you first begin your relationship with... The Union. Peter Carroll. Right. Crazy for You. Which was your first show in first Australia? Do- first day on the job. Right. Um, Chloe, are you a member of Actors' Equity? Uh, n- no, Peter. You will be. And so I was. Um, and I, 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 I was on the... Um, I, I don't think I was ever an equity dep in a show... Um, but Simon Burke, after we'd worked together on Chicago, I'm not quite sure why he suggested it, but maybe he maybe he picked up on the fact that I'm one of those people who really struggles if justice is not um, being served. That if something's really unfair on a really basic human level, I really don't cope. I'm not don't cope. I <laughs> speak up. <laughs> um, 
and my father was a was a was a big union man. Uh, with the education union. Yeah, yeah. and he um, he was the one who got me, um, who said that I should join the uh, the parents. What, what's the what's the, the, P, the, the what's the what's the um yeah what's the um oh yeah where it's students teachers and parents and there are always student representatives on it like the, 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 the student representative well, that's council, student representative council. Well, the, that's the, different, the PNF parents the, and friends yeah, I can't even remember what it was called. The school council. School council. It was actual school council. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, duh. Yeah, duh, Only took duh. like three minutes to get to there. Yeah. So school council. And I remember him saying, just because just because you don't understand everything that's being said in the room doesn't mean that your opinion is not important. And that's, that's always stayed advice. with me. That's great. It's yeah. always stayed with me. And it's always stayed with me too in now in my current role where new people will come on board, new um, members or younger members, and I'll often actually turn and say, so-and-so, Peter, is there anything you'd like to add? Because I know that I would often have something I, I wanted to add, but I was too fearful of yes. putting my hand up unless or saying... Invited. Yeah, unless invited. So um, so I learned a lot from, from that school council environment um, I've never been political, but I have had a very strong sense of of right and wrong and basic basic rights and how quickly they can be whittled away. So how, how important is the union to performers? Oh, <laughs> how do I express it? Um, maintaining the status quo in our work environment is an ongoing battle, let alone making headway. Because, you know, you, you, you know, I'm just being devil's advocate, but you've got a lot of performers also who think, oh, it's a waste of money or, you know, they're bloody hopeless, the union doesn't do anything. Mm. What do you say to them? So just on a really super basic level, then let's get rid of... Um, Lunch breaks, coffee breaks, um, let's just rehearse as many hours a day as you'd like. Um, no minimum wage that you just have to accept whatever you're um, given. Um, no safety conditions. You can't, you basically, you can't speak up about anything that you would just walk into the space. Oh, huh, let's talk about being paid for rehearsals. That didn't happen a very short time ago. Right. So So you could rehearse just four the, weeks for a show. Totally. Without be being paid. without being right. without being paid. So if you just take those really basic things that most people go, well that that's my right. Well actually it's your right because others have fought for it because otherwise it would be a totally unregulated industry and it would just be a free-for-all. Can I pick your brain on a couple of um, topics which mm. have certainly um, risen to notoriety, I suppose, um, to do with the union? Um, first of all, imported artists. Mm. Now, we recently heard of uh, the actor who was imported from the States to play Willy Wonka mm. in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and a lot of folk would... would uh, say that there's many actors here that could have done the role. And it, indeed it happened with Aladdin previously, I think, in a number of roles, etc. What... Tell me tell me where the union stands on that. I mean, is it easy for producers to put those foreign actors into the roles in Australia? Mm -hmm. And what is the union doing to, to hopefully uh, protect uh, those positions from Australians accessing them in the future? Mm -hmm. So Australia, unlike any other country in the world, we have an immigration law that allows um, allows producers to bring a performer from overseas as long as there is a net employment benefit. That means that one other Australian has to be employed. So if one uh, if one person from overseas is brought in, one Australian has to be perform has to be employed. Well. That's always going to happen, right? Because that can be a crew member. 
It can be anyone who is Australian on working the on the production. Right. So there is the action, there's the very real likelihood that a producer can bring a whole show with an ensemble and a principal cast, get that through the immigration department because there is a net employment benefit because they'll employ the orchestra and the crew from Australia and they will equal the number of people from overseas on stage. Well, I guess you look at a show like The Book of Mormon too, which has that big African-American cast uh, and then they put the two Americans in the lead for the first part. Uh, that was problematical too, I guess. So then the next, so then the next level that we have to talk about is the fact that in the past, the union has because we have this very loose um, immigration allowance for people to be invited in from overseas to perform. The union has always been consulted by producers to say, these are the reasons that we need to find this person. This is the exhaustive audition process we've already done in Australia. So we used to have an agreement. We had an original imported artist's agreement that said, if you've done all of these things to try to find these people and you show us proof that you've tried to do that, then you can bring this person in. Five years ago, the producers' union, for want of a better, better word, LPA, said, we don't want to have to deal with that consultation anymore. We feel that the union has too much say over the casting. We don't want to be accountable to the union. We just want to bring in the people that we want to bring in. So producers have not been accountable to anyone except the immigration department who are people sitting in suits at a desk going, oh, well, Peter's coming in from Germany, but everyone else is from Australia. Excellent. That ticks that box. Meanwhile, we don't know the membership. So all of the other actors in Australia who, who pay the union to do this work to keep producers accountable, we have no idea what has gone on. That was the issue with Willy Wonka. It's not about the person. You'll notice that I never said, I have never said anything in regards to the skill set or the name of that actor. It has always been about the fact that the producer did not at any point guide the union in regards to what had gone on for them in that audition process. So members of the union would come forward going, well, what happened? All of these people say they auditioned. We would like some answers. We had no answers because there was no agreement. So producers were no longer accountable. Um, do you find it difficult as a producer who's worked for a lot of these producers mm. to go and deal with them wearing this particular hat? Mm. Uh, in, a, in a way, it's actually, it's actually easier because I because know that, that they're good people. I know yeah. that they're good people. They're just business people. They're business mm. people, right? And so my, my, big, um, my big message to those producers and to LPA has been, if we work together, we can actually help you find these people. We've got an equity diversity committee. We've got an indigenous committee. We've got a, a, um, a uh, disabled persons committee. We have this incredible group of people who can be a resource. So for example, Michael Castle, when he was casting Kinky Boots and Beautiful, used the Equity Diversity Committee's resources to try to find people that they otherwise mightn't have known about. Yeah. And, oh, gee, Beautiful was able to be totally cast with Australians, of which Michael Castle was hugely proud. It's doable if we all work together. And, yes, there will always be scenarios where an overseas person needs to be brought in. We do it all the time in plays, films, because it's multi-layered in terms of funding for movies, funding for TV series, etc. So there are 
it's always appropriate. I'm spitting here. I'm getting so excited. It's always appropriate that um, we have people from overseas so that we get to work with different cultures, different styles of acting, different styles of performing. It is totally right. But it's got to be done with proper procedure. Otherwise, if it's just an open the door, come on in, because we can, let's just bring over these people who've done the role before. Just because they've done the role before, does that mean that they are the best person in Australia to play the role? Maybe they are, but let's let's forensically look at that. And especially when you can't see them being box office names and pulling an audience in for the producer. Yeah, look, all of that is subjective and that's the stuff that we don't... We don't, um, we don't want to dictate casting, but we do want to know, we do want to be able to say to my members, yes, we've seen the proof that all of these people were invited. These people were actually asked to join the production. They weren't able to for these reasons. Um, it's about information sharing. Now, the other big issue, which I'm sure has taken up a lot of your time over the past year, is the the hurricane of, of upset in the industry since the, the Harvey Weinstein mm. scandal broke and the, and the Me Too movement, um, that, that must have been or must continue to be incredibly difficult for the union and mm. yourself in that role. I, I think it's gotten really difficult in the last months um, with the most recent court case, court case um, because this is someone... Um, of a certain age and ilk and experience, not saying that any of the others are, are, not, are, are not important people in our industry, but just that, that this has brought out, um, I think it's challenged a generation who have known the workplace to be like this, that that's just the norm, that women sort of batted off the, you know... The witty repartee, or the you know the the, wickedness, the, the, the advances, mm. the the advances, the the phone calls on your you know home landline, and you know it's um, there's a generation that that have lived that, and it's the norm, and I'm I'm kind of likening it to when my father had to shift from LPs to CDs. So he had a huge LP collection, loved his LPs and vehemently resisted CDs. And I tried to say, it's the same music. It's just on a different format. format. We're still going to be able to listen to the music and actually it might sound even better. So we're facing the LP to CD moment in our industry where we're going from a way of working that is often fine but has also damaged people in certain scenarios and everyone deserves to go to work and feel physically and mentally safe. Safe is a, a tricky word. So it means we have to, we have to, every single one of us has to look at how we've behaved in our workplace because sometimes we forget it's a workplace and it's 2019 and we have to adhere to workplace laws and our industry for a good 50, 60 years hasn't always adhered to workplace laws. And I think we've got some sectors of the, of the industry who have very strong feelings about what is happening now and they are all totally valid and I think a lot of a lot of people are fearful about our industry becoming um, sanitized, that the work won't be as um, as edgy or as interesting or as creative. But the changes and the tools that we've been working on and the the ideas we've been introducing into the working landscape, means that it could actually be even more, but everyone will go home safe. I think of those, like, you know, the um, the work safe ad campaigns, you know, yep. where they, they say, you know, get home safe. Yep. Because what other industry do you hug, slap, stroke, kiss your colleague? No other industry. We're the only one. 
kiss your colleague, get home safe. Because there's so much in that. There's, there's, there's so much that the general public don't think about. Um, if you've got someone who's in a production that is that involves a lesbian, a lesbian couple, and they're going to do this eight shows a week or a TV show, it's a long-running show, they're going to do it day in, day out for a very long period of time. And one of those women is in a heterosexual relationship. The story I heard of the impact of that long-running experience on that woman and her relationship was extraordinary and something I'd not even thought about because she was spending more time on set in this lesbian relationship than she was at home with her husband. And so the counselling and the and the 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 work she had to do on herself to stay mentally safe whilst doing her job, doing her job of playing a role, meant that it was a very different skill set and a very different mindset that she had to go into. It's that stuff that the general public don't understand and we've got to protect our people. Gee, I, there are a lot of occupations, of course, well, there'd be a few occupations, I mean, that, that would require the worker to be so in touch with their emotional um, palate uh, like that, yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, you raise a lot of things there which I'm sure we've, we've never worked about. It's not just about a scene where two actors are under a sheet no. and the things that have gone wrong. That's the blooming tip of the iceberg. So it's keeping physically safe, emotionally safe. Because intimacy, people think that's about love scenes or, you know, um, it, it sounds soft, intimacy. It's got a lovely sort of softness to it. Our intimate zone is the zone that is an arm's distance, forward and, a, you know, it's circumference around us. Anytime someone steps within that space, they are entering your intimate zone, whether it's talking to you, holding your hand, putting their hand on your face, arm, anywhere, slapping you. We have people to deal with fight scenes because we know that's dangerous. Mm, mm. Just because we know how to have sex with someone, kiss someone or hug someone, doesn't mean that as actors we know how to do that with a colleague. Yeah. Shouldn't we have a professional who comes in and helps us know how to do that. So it's not Chloe having to have a sex scene with Peter. It's about us as actors having that scene. It's a very different... It, it, it's a, the same toolkit as a choreographer and a fight director. And whether we've known each other socially for a number of years or whether I'm seeing you for the first time, it needs that guidance. Totally. And and it's really the it's really the dialogue that two probably experienced actors you know, it would actually have with one another. Because if we, if we were working on a, on a scene like that together, we've known one another so long, we could actually go, let's talk about this. So yeah. we, you know, we'd pull out a couple of Barbie dolls and go, okay, right, I feel comfortable with this, you feel comfortable with that. What we've got to do is create a format so that any person who walks onto a set, whether they've known the person for 15 years or five minutes, has the same um, parameters in which to work so that they know what the no-go zones are, they know what the go zones are, and then you can experiment and play. And you can call halt when it goes out of the comfort zone. Uh, thank you for all the work that you've been doing on these two issues. Oh, I'm, I, I hope the industry have certainly expressed their gratitude because I'm sure it's a really difficult role to be in at the moment. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, it's it's tricky and people are very quick to union bash. It's, mm. it's really easy to say where the F is the union. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, when these issues break, of course, you know, you watch social media and there is an explosion of comment. Yeah. Everyone has an opinion, which they're, they're entitled to. But um, does social media help or hinder your role? Oh, such a good question um, because so much of my job, because I'm not in this for me, like I'm not, yeah, you, you, you call the president. No, 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 you don't get paid. So you, you act on things that the members are saying impacts them. If they say we are concerned about this, then we take action. Or we see something that um, that as a collective we need to we need to work on, and we then educate. 
so much of my role is about educating and social media is actually really helpful for me to see where the gaps are in knowledge and so and it's also a really quick way for people to share information so you know we have e-bulletins and all of that kind of stuff within the union but social media because people are on it all the time is actually a really great way to go ah there's a gap in the understanding someone doesn't quite have all of the information so i can educate quickly and the union can educate quickly and then others can spread that word so yeah it it, it is really helpful um going back in in our discussion today uh we talked about you know the the, the leap that you took after the Adams family, and we've also talked about the way that you repaired your arm. But mm. as a businesswoman, you have mm. returned to Pilates. Mm. Well, probably not returned. You probably practiced it all your life. But mm. Pilates is something you've decided to pursue with Extender Bar, your, mm. your your company there. Tell me about that. Mm. So you're absolutely right. I trained as a um, as a Pilates instructor after I'd rehabbed and started working professionally in musical theatre, and then was doing you know the usual um, uh, hospitality jobs in between in between um, works jobs gigs. shows yep. uh, and was giving out all of this advice to my colleagues about you know exercises they could do you know to help their sore back or their sore ankle and I went you might want to go and get trained in that first because uh, it's something I absolutely love so I went and trained as a Pilates instructor and have been doing that since I was 23-24 um, and then Extend Bar is actually originally an American brand which is a fusion of Pilates and dance so it's founded in Pilates the dance element is there for you for cardiovascular challenge so it's it's a it's a workout it's not a dance class it's not a ballet class and it enables people who otherwise wouldn't be able to work out um, get a really great workout as well as those who are totally um, able-bodied and it is massively rewarding and I started as an instructor and then opened my own studio and then now um, employ many performers as instructors I also train all the instructors um, so it's a hugely rewarding sort of parallel parallel life. Um, and I feel very proud that I can help people have a have an income. And about 12 months in, I went, I'm an employer. Oh, that's really, that's really lovely. But then you feel the responsibility that you've got to keep finding clients to come to your studio because you're paying these wages and people have dreams based on those wages. And so it's been a really, really incredible time. Your days must be so full. They are massive. So, so is there still an... Well, I, I know the answer to this, I suppose. Is there still an opportunity for you to perform? But of course there is because you yeah. just finished a big tour of... Um, Josephine Wants to Dance. Josephine Wants to Dance. Yeah. That was, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, how, how do you balance all of that? <laughs> I'm not quite sure. I don't know that I do balance it. No, I do. Um, Every day is different. Do you find downtime? This is my downtime right now with you. Oh, is it? Oh, aren't you good? Um, Oh, look, I love what I do. So I suppose if you love what you do, then it's not a chore and you can get through this. I look at people lining up at the bus stop outside my studio and I rock up there at half past five in the morning, smile at them watching the sunrise and they're all standing with their heads in their phones and I think oh, I don't have to get on that bus. But what time do you rise in the morning? You I must get up be at five. Five. Yeah. And what time do you get to bed? Are you a late dweller? Well I kind like, of can't be because if you've got no, to get up at five, well that's well I'm just trying you've to kind of got to get the yeah, you've kind of got got to get the you aim for seven hours sleep. So you know nine PM is good. Um, 10 p.m. is probably more realistic. Right, because otherwise you wouldn't function. No, and and that was what was wonderful about doing um, doing Josephine Wants to Dance. It was a, a regional tour, and it was um, it was during winter, so I was able to sort of step away from the studio a bit a bit more and have an amazing team of instructors uh, who look after the place. They're, they're absolutely wonderful. But I was also awake at five cause I needed to check what was going on at the back end of the business. Um, 
doing children's shows, their daytime shows. So it was great. I was in bed by, you know, 8.30 p.m. winning. <laughs> so I recommend it if you want to still, you know, have your nightlife, children's theatre, it's the go. The best way to go. Yeah. Oh. And that was a magical, that was a magical production and tour. If, if you can work for Monkey Bar Theatre Company, just do it. It's... They're Providing quite exceptional. Quality theatre for, quite for exceptional. children. Oh, my gosh. And, and going out to areas where you know those children are seeing their very first very first live production. And we also had like a Q&A with the children afterwards. And the things they would come, the questions they would come out with were just extraordinary. So it was aimed at the 3 to 11-year-old market. And... The one that stands out the most was this beautiful boy in, um, oh, my gosh, I've, I've just forgotten the location, out in the middle of whoop, whoop. middle of WA, right. in between Kalgoorlie and Perth. Oh, my gosh, I cannot believe it. Cool Guardian. No, it wasn't. It no. wasn't. But, geez, you know your country towns yes, in, in, in WA. WA. Uh, it starts with an M. Oh, man. Anyway... Uh, incredible couple running the theatre there. 3,000 kids from around the region. Mandurah. Ma- no. No, 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 that's no, down no, no, south. No, 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 that's yeah. down south. Um, uh, 3,000 children and their parents came to see came to see the show over, um, over four performances. And at the end of one of them, um, a little boy stood up and he had these beautiful glasses on. And he put his hand on his chest and he said, where did you find those costumes? <laughs> and we just went, we want to scoop you up. You're one of us. So I know, I know that little boy Down at some track. point is going to be designing costumes for all of us. He's just, he was heaven. You could see he, it was his light bulb moment. And ironically, Beautiful James Brown, the designer. designer yeah. His dad grew up in this town. Wow, wow, spooky. So, when the the twenty forty six revival production <laughs> of Hello Dolly, <laughs> starring Chloe Delamore, he will be will be the costume designer. Will be it. He will be the designer. costume designer. Fabulous. Yeah. Gee, it's good to see you. It's, it's so been far too long. We we always have a good giggle, don't we? When we when we catch up. Absolutely. And a couple of tears. I know. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry about that. Oh no, it's you. beautiful. You're a, you're a beautiful soul, and we're we're so thrilled that that you're leading the uh, the National Equity Organisation, and it's always a thrill to see you on stage, and and we hope it happens again very very soon. Thank you, beautiful man. Thank you for such great questions. Thanks, Claire. Oh, I love stages. Always something new to learn. If you enjoyed this conversation, you're bound to enjoy many more from the Stages Archive. You'll find conversations with Tony Lamont, Geraldine Turner and Andrew McFarlane, just to name a few. And all with fascinating tales across all stages. Find the podcast on Wooshka or in iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe so that you may receive each new episode as it drops. And take the time to rate and review the podcast. Please, it helps us reach a broader audience and share these great conversations. I'm Peter Ryers and you've been listening to Stages.